Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English and David Emmett bringing you the show this week. And David, it's a bit of a different show this week on the Paddock Pass podcast. We're looking at our top five Grand Prix riders of all time. And the reason we've picked this is that Neil's actually written about this in this month's On Track Off-Road. He's given his top five. And Dave, we haven't read or talked to Neil about who's on his top five. So it's going to be interesting to see how our list compares to Neil's list once we're able to read that in On Track Off-Road. Yeah, exactly. I'm quite looking forward to seeing just how wrong Neil is. I have a feeling he's going to be very wrong. But I also, Dave, (laughs) seeing as I've talked to you about your choice in music, movies, pretty much everything, you're wrong. So I'm imagining your top five (laughs) Grand Prix riders of all time is going to have a couple of interesting names in it. I think so. And having talked to you about this uh, over the years that we've been uh, sort of uh, sharing houses at races and stuff and going to uh, going to dinner at races, uh, I suspect we um, could be in for a bit of an argument. Right, Dave. I'll tell you what, though. We're going to get started straight away and we're going to both say who our top rider of all time is. So on the count of three, I want you to say who your top rider of all time is. One, two, three... Mark Marquez. Marquez. <laughs> okay, that's fine. We can get rid of that one straight away. Mark is clearly the greatest writer of all time. You just have to look at the stats for him. You have to look at what he's been able to do. You have to look at how he was able to adapt to a MotoGP bike pretty much straight away and be the fastest rider in the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the only uh, proviso I would uh, I would have here is the use of the word the greatest writer of all time. I don't really don't like the word... Uh, the greatest. I think that Mark Marquez is... You're going to hate this podcast then, Dave. <laughs> I think th- th- there's no question that Mark Marquez is the best MotoGP racer of all time um, uh, because as you say, the, the stats bear it out. The fact that he won what was it, his second or his third race, he was on the podium in his first race, he won his uh, the, the championship in the first year, um, uh, d- d- took Freddie Spencer's uh, championships uh, or, or records on the way, um, and it, it basically, it's just ever since he came into the championship, he's controlled it. He's still the best. Um, uh, you know, the the the, the shortcut to a, uh, to a championship is uh, it goes through Mark Marquez. Yeah, it, it to me, there's just. That there's just no question that he's uh, the, that he's the 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 best in the world. The people talk about you know the greatest of all time. I think that's uh, it's much more difficult because if you if I mean a rider who's likely to make make our list, Valentino Rossi, um, he's definitely he's perhaps the greatest, uh, the most significant MotoGP rider of all time because of the impact he made on the sport, which you know Mark Marquez simply hasn't done. But um, you know, is Mark Marquez a better racer than Valentino Rossi? Well, I suggest you go back and look at the uh, uh, results of the past few years and um, you can see it for yourself. Yeah, and I think it's obviously, as you said, David, it's worth noting that Rossi is going to be the most impactful Grand Prix rider of all time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's still going to be down as the best. I think if we did this 10 years ago, without question, you're putting Rossi down as the greatest rider of all time. But now... It moves on, and that's the way it has to be. I remember at uh, one point, Casey Stoner was asked about how it always evolves in racing, and it's always the newest guy learns all the tricks from the guy that had been at the front. Casey learned from Rossi, Mark learned from Casey, and we're seeing a host of riders now start to learn from Marquez. And at some point, 
they'll be able to beat him. And and that's the one thing that's, you know, been impressive about Rossi, and we'll talk about him in a couple of minutes. But he's been able to adapt and fight against all this host of riders. It could be Lorenzo, Pedroza, Stoner. He saw them all off. And he's been able to go against Marquez for years as well. Obviously, it's a while since we've seen Rossi at the front of the field winning races on a consistent basis, but he's still able to be there or thereabouts. And it shows how impressive he is whenever you think just how good Mark is, because whether you're looking at this list as being Grand Prix rider, as in in all classes, or if you're just looking at the Premier class, you know, Mark, his feet's in a one two five Moto2 bike. He showed all the way through his career what he could do on all classes of bikes. And it was the same for Rossi as well. Obviously, Dave, on this list, we're going to have a couple of riders probably that, you know, we only really saw what they could do in the Premier class or it was only in the Premier class where they had the bike underneath them to really be able to show their true talents. And I think, you know, for the purposes of a list like this, it does tend to be what you do on the big bike that uh, really determines where you sit in the list. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, the, the, well, MotoGP, 500 Grand Prix, the, the 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 class of kings, the uh, you know the the premier class, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's where the best riders in the world are. It's where the best riders in the world want to be. Um, so whoever happens to be in that class at that time are the best riders in the world at that moment and uh so you know you have to beat them they they they, that that's how you measure that record and uh, dave you said at this moment that's how you measure them let's see what the rest of your top five is run through it there (laughs) right well i have in second place i have uh casey stoner um basically that's talent the man just raw talent um it is a terrible shame that we never got to see casey stoner race against mark marquez um but on the other hand uh, the the fact that stoner retired made way for uh, mark marquez um stoner was able to do things with a motorcycle that uh, that normal humans couldn't um ben spees i think uh, somebody at best he says when i'm following um uh, valentino rossi i can see what he's doing but I can't do what he's doing. When I follow Casey Stoner, I just don't understand what he's doing. Um, also, the fact that he just dominated on what was quite obviously a very inferior Ducati with just one advantage. Um, for me, that puts him ahead of Valentino Rossi, who I have as third. Again, impact. There is just absolutely no argument that Valentino Rossi is the most important figure in uh, motorcycle racing probably um he raised the level of the sports the the, the you know the 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 the, uh, the media attention the profile of it um to a completely unknown level absolutely unknown level he he made the sport what it is today and um you know Carmelo Carmelo Espelato has to be extremely uh, pleased with him um after uh, uh after Valentino Rossi in fourth place I have Giacomo Agostini much to his chagrin I'm sure um uh Agostini was obviously racing in a much less competitive field. Um, you know, he was only other racing maybe two or three other bikes. But if you look at the way that he utterly dominated those races, um, 
Yes, he had the best bike, but he always had to beat his teammate, which he always did. Um, he had, you know, the perfect seasons, uh, or he had the nearest things to perfect seasons. Uh, there was one year, I think, where he, um, uh, he didn't used to go to the, uh, to, to the race in Argentina, um, until, uh, the person who, um, uh, until one rider was bragging about having won the, the Argentinian, uh, around and, uh, a local Argentinian and said, um, right, well, uh, uh, you know, if Ago had been here, I would have been able to show him what's for, I would have been able to beat him as well. So the next year, Ago went over and, uh, lapped everyone, including the, the winner of the last year's race. And also he swapped from MV to, to Yamaha and then won on the Yamaha as well, which is, uh, which is an incredible achievement. And then finally, fifth, um, mighty Mick, Mick Doohan, um, probably the most miserable man in, uh, in motorcycle racing. But the way he won, I mean, the, he dominated the second half of the, uh, or he, he dominated the 90s. Um, and he would have dominated earlier uh, in the 90s if it hadn't have been for um, the horrific crash in 92, which basically sort of ruled him out for, which meant, it meant he lost the championship um, at Aston in 92, um, nearly lost his leg, uh, nearly lost his career, uh, struggled in 93, uh, and then from 94 on was, was just utterly dominant. Yeah, I, I, I was right, Dave. You were dead wrong with all your selections, really. Um, <laughs> no, like, I can't argue with with some of them, but I'm going to have to because I've got a completely different list. I've got Rossi at number two because, like you said, the impact Rossi made on the sport is huge, but you just have to look at the numbers as well. Like the record book in an era a lot more competitive than I go, he's been able to rack up a huge amount of wins, 89 in the Premier class, and that just shows the quality of the rider. He's had over 20 years in the Premier class, and he's had 20 years of deserving a factory bike deserving to be on the grid. He's not there just because he's able to sell product or anything like that. He's there because he's still one of the five, six best riders in the world. And at his age, that's absolutely incredible. So I've got Rossi at number two. I've got King Kenny at number three because Roberts came over as an American flat tracker to change the world. He came over and pretty much his whole career was in the premier class. He had, I think, half a dozen Grand Prix in the 250 class, but you're really looking at just the premier class for Kenny and he had over 20 wins. He's a triple world champion and uh, a riding style that was unlike anyone else at that stage. I've got Wayne Rainey at number at number four because, again, Rainey was the dominant rider of the previous golden era of Grand Prix racing. When 500s were at their meanest, he was the best rider in the world. He was super fast. He was super consistent. He was just an absolute force. Uh, I've got Mike Halewood in my top five as well to round it off because Halewood, a bit like with Rossi, he just uh, was incredibly impactful on the sport. If you think back to his comeback in 1978 on the Isle of Man, he basically made all of the British biking public want to go to the Isle of Man to watch him race again. And he was able to win the senior TT. He was able to show that he hadn't lost anything other than quite a lot of his hair. And when you look at uh, Halewood's career, he had 14 TT wins. He had nine world championships. He was super successful in the 500 class. He had 75, 76 Grand Prix wins. When he retired, he was at the absolute peak of his ability 
and he came back 10 years later without missing the beat. So Halewood makes my top five. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is your list. Um, so, for example, Kenny Roberts. Kenny Roberts is quite clearly one of the absolute best riders ever to swing a leg over a, mo- over a motorcycle. Um, it's so difficult to know where to put, to, to, to put him. He could have made my top five too. Freddie Spencer is another one. Neither of us have Freddie Spencer. And yet Freddie, what Freddie Spencer did winning the 500s and 250s uh, 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 championships in the same year is absolutely unsurpassed. And it was Freddie Spencer's records, which Mark Marquez, which stood until uh, Mark Marquez uh, actually arrived, which is again, astonishing. It's the trouble with these lists is they are always really, really difficult. Well, the problem with these lists is they're always too short. And <laughs> if if I'm to round out my top 10, I've got Casey, Lawson, Dewan, Lorenzo and Spencer in it. And, you know, I've left Agu off my list. And that's because the era just wasn't competitive enough for me. Whenever I look at some of those other guys that have come after him, I think Agu, you know, he's left an, a huge mark on the record books. But it's before obviously before my time, but also before the time when you were able to sit down and watch their races in their entirety. And that's where people like Roberts have an advantage. That's where Spencer has an advantage. That's where a lot of riders have an advantage. Yeah, but um, uh, Agar raced against Hellwood and um, beat him on occasion. So, uh, you know, there is... uh, You can make a case that he was was good enough. And and again... Yes, it wasn't a very competitive era. It was the way which uh, Agostini won. It was the fact that he um, dominated. It was the fact that he would race everyone else and lap the entire field. And he would lap the entire field um, uh, at tracks where, or well, circuits, because uh, it was quite often public roads, where you know a, a lap would be sort of three, four, five minutes, and he would still manage to lap everyone. Um, uh, yes, the MV was the best bike on the grid, but you know he beat Phil Reed, um, and he felt he beat Phil Reed fairly, uh, uh, fairly handily a number of times um, when they were both on the same uh, bi- uh, on the same bike, and Phil Reed was no slouch. So I think the way, uh, again, the way that you measure talent of a particular rider is always first against their teammate. And um, uh, Ago had teammates and he always managed to beat them. Yeah, and you you say that Ago and Halewood, obviously they had a couple of years going up against each other, but Halewood came on the scene a bit earlier and then left to go racing cars. And I think it would have been really interesting to see what would have happened if the two were up against each other at the same time at their peaks. Obviously, there's only a couple of years between them in terms of age, but just when they got to the world stage was quite different. Halewood came from a very wealthy family. It was interesting to see how he approached his racing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think Halewood for me was just that little bit more impressive. And maybe that's just clouded by coming back at the TT and doing what he did as well. But, you know, I, I, for someone like Ago, Again, another big impact on the sport. But if I'm making up my list of the top five, I just I couldn't put him in there. And I'd say if I had to like properly sit down and do my top ten list, he'd stand a, a better chance of getting in at ten. But I don't think I'd have him in ahead of some of the other riders. And that's where these lists always get quite interesting. Like they're always just down to your opinions that change 
like the tides as well because you can easily have one day where you'll put someone inside your top five and the next day you think about it a little bit differently and they fall out of that list but Dave I'm interested to know why you've got Casey ahead of Rossi just talent just pure talent um uh like I said what Ben Speed said is, is, is says about him um that he could see what he could see what Valentina was doing but he couldn't he couldn't do what Valentina was doing but when he followed Casey he just you know, he didn't understand what he what he was doing, and um, that the, the sensitivity on a motorcycle is what was uh, so what was so remarkable. The fact that Stoner was so much faster than all of his teammates. Um, what he did in uh, two thousand six, you know, first year, uh, the, his first year in the class, um, uh, turning up at Qatar, for example, you know, like he t- literally he slept, uh, he missed two two connecting flights, and he uh, he he was sleeping on the um, uh, on airport floors. Uh, uh, turned up at uh, Qatar late, just in time for practice. Literally sprinted out of um, Lucio Cecchinaio's car into his leathers uh, and goes out. And in sort of three laps, he was he'd set the fastest lap in in his first practice at a track he'd never been at. That um, that kind of talent is utterly otherworldly. He was flawed, um, but it, his ability was beyond compare. Yeah, well, for me, Casey was always the most talented rider I'd ever seen until pretty recently whenever I, I, you know, I I had I had to just admit that Mark was just the the absolute peak of anything that we've seen. But like for uh, so long, Casey was that barometer with which you judged the ultimate peak of any other rider. Obviously, Casey, double world champion and uh, won a lot of races. We never really saw him at his best in the 125 class, Dave. He never really had the right breaks. If, if you remember back to whenever he first came into the Grand Prix paddock, he was on a 250. He was only 16, I think, racing for LCR that year. Steps back onto a 125. And a bit like with Lorenzo, moved up to the 250 class again, where he kind of gave up the chance of winning a 125 World Championship just to be back on a 250 and uh, spent two years there himself and Pedroza had some great battles in that class at that stage yeah. and then when Casey got onto a MotoGP bike he was just one of those riders that the the more powerful a bike was the more it was sliding around the better he was and it was almost as if he was made for those bigger bikes and I think that's what makes it even more impressive that he was a very good 125 rider but really with Casey, it was once he got onto those big bikes, he really saw what he could do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really was for Stoner. It really was all about throttle control. He had just everything in his right hand. Um, uh, lots of people I spoke to. Um, I spoke to Andrea Zunia, uh, uh, an engineer who was working on the um, electronics for Yamaha in sort of two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Well, while they were racing against the, against Ducati, and they were working really hard to try and improve their ele- electronics package because they thought it was about um, uh, it was all about you know the Ducati's electronics package, and that was what they were uh, having to fight against. And then when um, uh, Zunia moved to Honda, um, Stoner moved to Honda in 2011, and when he actually got to see Stoner's data, then he realized, oh, yeah, no, this has got absolutely nothing to do with electronics. This is all about uh, uh, how 
Casey Stoney uses the throttle, uh, uses the power of the bike, understands the power of the bike, and, and, and finds a way to get uh, to get around the corner. But again, it will keep coming back to the Ducati. The the the, the way um, certainly in those first couple of races of 2007, Stoner had an advantage, but that bike just wouldn't go around corners. I mean, you can see that the what happened to Loris Caparossi the year before 2006. Caparossi was genuinely in the um, uh, in the fight for the for the title. 2007, he was nowhere except at Mategi, where he where he always won, and you know he he won there because it was raining. So yeah, for me, that's what makes Stoner special. He could do things that other riders couldn't. Yeah, and I have to say, I absolutely loved watching Casey and especially on that Ducati and if you think back to even the years where he was inconsistent obviously you know it's all come out and it came out during the time that uh, why he was inconsistent a lot of it down to illness but uh, that was Rossi at his peak and Casey was every bit as good as him and a lot of the time better than him and uh, you know this was a this was a, a young rider coming through with in 2007 especially only one year of MotoGP experience and to be able to do what he was doing at the start of that year whether he had a horsepower advantage or not really was amazing but for me much as I as I loved Casey I just couldn't quite put him inside the top five just because of the other riders that have that little bit more longevity or a little bit more success in other classes I think if I was if I was to be left with an option of your you have to pick five riders who are going to set the fastest lap or five riders that are going to win a race. I think I'd be very hard-pressed to bet against Casey at any stage, but for overall career accomplishments, which this kind of list has to be about as well, that's why I'd have Casey outside the top five. But in terms of outright talent, he's the second-best rider of all time. And I think if he had stayed on to race against Marquez you'd be having a very different discussion as to who's the greatest of all time as well. And that's how that's how highly I rate Casey. But just in this kind of list, I'd have him just that little bit further down. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, my column in Adam's on-track off-road and this the, 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 this month's issue of, of on-track off-road is about Andrea Iannone, um, who I think is immensely talented. I think he's also one of the most talented riders um, uh, you know, ever to swing a leg over a bike, but he is such a flawed character. Um, he lacks a certain amount of intelligence. He absolutely lacks the dedication and the focus uh, uh, that is needed to succeed at the very highest level. Um, so yeah, talent. What is talent? You know, when you when you talk about a, a, a talented rider, do you just mean his ability to go fast on a motorcycle, or do you mean his ab- ability to su- sustain success over an extended career? Because again, I mean, you'd have to go back to Valentino Rossi. Valentino Rossi is quite clearly the most successful rider because you know he won in two thousand in his first year in the in Grand Prix, um, and he's last victory i think 2018 um so yeah it's uh it's it, it's been a long it, it's been a very very long and and successful uh, su- successful career um, oh no yeah. 2017 17 yeah yeah and uh, and it was interesting Dave, because obviously we were chatting about this earlier on just in a whatsapp group about ian one and where his talent is I personally think in terms of outright talent, if you were to put everyone on a supermoto or if you were to put everyone out there on a flat tracker or, or and, and everyone's on the same bike, 
Ian O'Neill's talent would come to the fore. But on a MotoGP bike, your talent comes down to your intelligence as well. It comes down to your ability to get the most out of your tires, the most out of the package, all those things together. And in terms of a MotoGP rider, outright natural talent, just it, it doesn't exist in my mind because the bikes are too complicated. The level of understanding to be able to ride them is too high where your ability and feel just isn't enough. If you look at Casey's a good example of it, actually, because Casey had an unnatural feel for what was happening underneath him. If you remember the amount of times when Casey would come in at the end of a day and say, the track shit, it's bumpy, it's this, it's that, it's the other, and no other rider would complain about it. And then a year later, we'd get the track resurfaced. You know, he could feel that. And you'd, you'd think that in terms of, oh, maybe it's a one-off. But then it would happen year after year at different tracks where they'd suddenly need to get resurfaced a year later. And, and he could clearly feel something before everyone else. That kind of feeling is unlike anyone else that I've ever seen in the Grand Prix paddock. And Ian One, he might have a great feel for what the bike's doing underneath him. But on a MotoGP bike, that sheer feeling by and large, isn't enough. You need to be able to have the intelligence to make use of what you're feeling as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, uh, again, I would say just, you know, raw natural tire uh, riding ability. Ian Oney's an absolutely fantastic rider. Uh, in terms of talent, if you want to talk about talent being something bigger, um, then yeah, uh, it, it, he lacks, he is so flawed um, that uh, he's missing uh, a lot of things. He's missing and he's, he's just missing too much. And talking about sensitivity, because there are, there's a couple of things which, which for me really marked out Stoner's uh, sensitivity. There's one story, um, Christian Gabarini told me that um, they sent uh, Stoner out on a, on a bike. He did, I think, one or two. He said, you know, uh, it was at a, it was at a Qatar test. We sent him out. He came back two after two laps. He was supposed to do like five, uh, five or two, uh, five or ten laps uh, uh, run. Came back after two laps. Said, no, there's something wrong with the engine. The, the engine's going to go. It's uh, the, the, there's something wrong with the bike. Uh, I don't trust it. So the engineers looked at it. They uh, uh, ran it. They turned it over. They listened. Um, they did a, ran a whole bunch of tests. Checked the oil. All the rest. Um, couldn't find anything and said, look, honestly, we looked, we couldn't find anything just for our sake, just go out for one more, uh, for one more run. And, uh, uh if it's, uh, if you, if you've still got the same feeling, come back in and we'll, uh, and we'll swap the engine. Um, Stoner went out, he got around the, the bike, made it halfway around the track, uh, before the engine packed up. So he could, he could feel, that there was something wrong, which uh, other riders couldn't. And also, if you remember in 2012, when Bridgestone changed the front tyre, made it a little bit softer, um, Stoner immediately complained, said, this is no good, it's too soft, it's generating chatter, and it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely rubbish. Um, uh, the, this was at a test. Everyone else was saying, no, no, it's fine, it's perfectly, for, you know, nothing wrong with it. I was... Uh, a, a, can't see what what the problem is, and yet by mid season everyone was complaining about chatter because uh, and complaining it was too soft because they had been um, they'd found that it had been so soft because they had 
been riding as hard as uh, uh, as they could during the races. And that was the difference between Stoner and um, uh, uh, and the other riders at the time, because the other riders at the time were going very fast at the test, but still um, couldn't bring that same sort of intensity, which uh, Stoner did to almost uh, almost every lap. I mean, Stoner would set uh, faster sectors on his outlap, so uh, that's that's just you know how remarkable he was. Yeah, and it was interesting when you talk to people about Casey, it is always that ability just to always be absolutely nailing it on the limit straight away. And I remember I was talking to Ernesto Marinelli about Troy Bayless, and he said that Troy was the best test rider he ever worked with. And I remember I asked him, like, you know, what made him good? Because, you know, whenever you talk to people about Bayless, the one thing that never really comes up is technically Troy is a very strong rider. You never really hear that about Bayless. And uh, Ernie told me that uh, Bayless doesn't particularly care too much about anything technical on the bike. He just wants a bike that's faster or slower. And if a bike is faster, it's better. If it's slower, it's worse. If the bike (laughs) is easier to ride but slower, it's not good. What's the point in making that change? And every lap, Bayless would go out and just be absolutely ragging it. And the good benefit from that was the data always showed what it was like on the absolute limit. So the team were able to really build the bike around Troy Bayless and they were able to say, well, this is what happens when we make this change. And Bayless would just say, well, look, it's a tenth of a second faster. It might be absolutely draining everything from me to be able to ride this bike. But if it's faster, it's the way I want it. And Casey's a bit like that as well, where if the bike's faster or if you're able to use them for testing like we've seen Honda Ducati do, you're able to get an absolute limit of what the bike can do. And it just gives you great feedback. It's able to, you're able to take three days with Stoner and they can be more valuable than a year's worth of testing with some of your other riders. And that's the benefit of having someone like Stoner on your books over the last few years. But uh, Dave, I'm interested to know how you're going to deal with all the Rossi fans for having Rossi at number three. Like, it's bad enough in their eyes that you've managed to put Mark ahead of Rossi, but Casey too. You're, it, I'll tell you what, Dave, it's it's a good thing that racing's going to be behind closed doors for the next while. <laughs> That's right. That's right, yeah. Well, so I've, uh, I've, been, uh, I've, I've been building a, uh, a nuclear bunker underneath my house, so, which I can retreat to in the case of... Um, uh, being being surrounded by irate Rossi fans, but um, uh, I mean, most of them most of them are perfectly good natured, but there are one or two who get a little bit fanatical about it. Um, but again, it, it's one of these things. Like I say, Valentino Rossi is quite clearly the most important rider to uh, to uh, to have ever raced. It's just that I think there's a couple of riders who are actually um, uh, better and more talented. Um, I have a question for you, Steve. In fact, I've got two questions. First of all. Why King Kenny and not Freddie Spencer? And second of all, why Rainey and not Lawson? Right. I have Kenny at number three because he was the first. He was the first of those Americans that came across and uh, he brought the flat track style. He was unlike anything that Europe had seen up to that point. And when you talk to people from that era, it is very similar to what they say about Spencer, where he was he just came in and could do things that other riders couldn't do for a number of years. And when you look at the videos from back in the late uh, 70s, whenever he came over, 
it's amazing how much he revolutionized what we saw in racing. And then as well, what's the best video on MotoGP.com, Dave? <laughs> Would it be um, uh, uh, Kenny Roberts at uh, uh, the Indy Mile on the 500, on the TZ500? Yeah, uh, TZ750. It's 750, and, uh, yes. Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing because it just shows everything about him. You know, he gets on the bike and he hasn't ridden it since you know, whenever he was racing in the US and he's either going to make it or he isn't. And as always with Kenny, he managed to make it. And, uh, you know, he he came over and was immediately fast, immediately winning races, immediately winning championships. And he never he never learned any of the tracks by coming through 125s or 250s. He was straight out onto a 500 and straight out onto the pace. And... Uh, you know, he he was an incredible rider back then. He was the best rider of his era. And uh, like the way that I look at it is, you know, Mark is the best rider of his era. Rossi was the best rider of his era. If you look at the first 15 years of Rossi's career, a typical career arc, you know, he comes in on 125s. He's massive. He's way bigger than any rider in the 125 class. He's got no right to be winning races, winning championships, but he finds a way to do it. And when you look at Rossi at uh, somewhere like... Austria in 96. It's a really good example because everyone went there with a clean slate. It was a brand new track and uh, everyone did one day of testing beforehand to learn the track. But Rossi was riding lines that no one else was riding. He was trying to figure out things a little bit differently to all the other established riders. And that was where he was immediately able to get to the front. And, you know, he, he probably should have won that race. And he, he ended up being beaten by Ivan Goy. And then a week later, he wins his first Grand Prix in Brno. And from that point on, Rossi's always at the front. He's always challenging for race wins. Like his 1-2-5 career, you know, he was 5 foot 10 and he's up against, you know, proper normal sized 1-2-5 riders in an era where you did have small capacity riders. And he was able to still fight with them the whole way through that season. Goes on to a 250. He's at the front straight away goes on to a 500, he does the same. You know, when you look at Rossi up until, let's say, 2010, 2011, up, up until he moved to Ducati, he's the best rider of his era. So he's obviously shown that. Kenny did that as well. And Wayne Rainey did that too. The best era of 500 Grand Prix and Rainey was the one that was most consistent. He was the one that was winning races, winning championships and always up there at the front. And he was doing it on a lesser bike in a lot of ways, the Yamaha compared to the Honda. There are less resources available to him compared to what HRC were putting in. So that's why I'd have Roberts and Rainey in there as opposed to you know putting in someone like Freddie Spencer. Yeah, but yeah, the counterpoint to that is I mean I have a soft spot for uh, Eddie Lawson because um, uh, he was just so driven. And in a way, um, Lawson was one of those people who revolutionized the sport because he was one of the first people to take uh, fitness seriously. Um, he came in sort of a little bit earlier and he overlapped only a little bit with um, uh, with Rainey. Um, but it, uh, it was also, uh, it was Lawson who, you know, won back-to-back championships on different bikes. Um, uh, when they swapped from, uh, the, uh, l- let me just check it up. When he, he, he swapped from the, um, uh, from the Yamaha to the Honda, uh, and, you know, 
was champion was a champion straight away. Um, he won on the Kajiva, which is uh, uh, again uh, the, the the only victory for the, for the Kajiva, I believe. So yeah, and and I I can't argue with loss neither, Dave, because he was incredible. If you look at his results all the way through his career, he came on in I think it was eighty two, eighty three, and was on the podium straight away in the five hundred class. He was champion his second year. I think he finished second the year after. Then he, you know, I think he was second, won the championship, finished third, won the championship, won the championship. So his first five years, six years in the class, he was amazing. But, I, you know, and I have him in my top 10, but I just don't quite have him making my top five. And I'm I'm reasonably sure that, like, I'm going to text Neil while we're recording this just to get his top five, just that we have it for the end of the show. And I'm reasonably sure that Neil will have Lawson in his top five, but he won't have Rainey. And it's going to be interesting to read on track off road to to listen to Neil's reasoning behind it. For me, it there's absolutely nothing between them. Like for me, Lawson and uh, Rainey are the you know, and then you put Spencer in there as well. They're a, they're a long way ahead of the likes of Kevin Schwantz in those American lists. Never mind of the all time lists. And uh, that's to take nothing away from Schwanz, a spectacular rider, and one that, you know, when you look back at some of the great races of all time, Schwanz is in a lot of them. But, you know, he wasn't a Lawson, he wasn't a Spencer, he wasn't a Rainey. And that's because those riders are just that little bit more special than others. And I just have Rainey just edging it from someone like Lawson. I think Lawson's quite interesting, though, because, you know, a lot of riders try and make a transition to car racing. And uh, Lawson was one of the last ones that actually was relatively successful at that. He, I think he, he didn't really make it in IndyCar, but he tried in the feeder series and was able to win races in that. He was able to be a regular podium man in the Indy Light series in the early 90s. And, and that's quite impressive in its own right as well, to be able to make that transition after you finish a, a racing career on bikes. And it shows, Dave, again, just how driven he was. He, he wanted to try something different. And he wasn't going to accept just making up the numbers. He wanted to get better every time he went out. Every year he wanted to improve. And that's what he did in a car as well. And that's very impressive. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, one thing about both our lists, I mean, the the oldest uh, or the, if you like, the earliest rider would be uh, uh, Giacomo Agostini or Agostini and Halewood, the two of them together. Um, we're missing, for example, John Surtees. You were talking about, uh, you know, bikes and cars. Uh, John Surtees, the only man to win a Grand Prix title, a, a Premier Class Grand Prix title and an F1 title. Uh, should we, is this recency bias? Are we, are we missing out by not including them or is is this just an artifact of not, um, uh, you know, not knowing enough, not being able to know enough about? It? Because there simply isn't the, the the history and the reporting of you know the races in the fifties. As I mean, it's incomparable compared to the amount of material which which we're sort of producing now, sixty years later, sixty seventy years later. Yeah, like for for me, like I said, Halewood is in my list on the basis of stats as much as anything else you know and and the the reports of what people said about him made him make my list obviously for Halewood for Igo we didn't see them race so it's very difficult to be able to say oh well you know Igo is better than Ryder X 
because you're mostly looking at it just on the prism of results, you know, a little bit about what you hear from people that were there at that stage. But it's a lot easier whenever we're looking at it for riders of, you know, the era where you've been watching racing, or at least, you know, from the 80s onwards, where there's extensive videos, whether it's highlights packages or season reviews or full full races that you're able to watch. So we've got an, an awful lot more data to be able to use from the 80s onwards. But, uh, you know, someone like Sartes, again, it, he makes a massive impact on the sport as a whole. But does he make enough to be inside your top 10 list? And again, he could be another one of those riders where, you know, he made the switch out of car out of bikes onto cars and you know he he did that at the, at a time where he left it too late to be one of the great car drivers and he left too early to be one of the greatest motorcyclists you know it's very easy for that to be the case despite all the success that he had yeah again um you are also stuck with the racing against the riders who you have to compete against. I mean, this to an extent is also a complaint against Dewan, um, that, uh, you know, he won all those championships against riders who were not really of the same caliber. Um, but again, Dewan for me, Dewan is very like Agostini because he, he didn't just, beat them he humiliated them he was so much better than everyone else and of course there was the 92 season the 92 season where he basically had it in the um uh had the the, the championship in the bag uh had that horrific uh, smash at um Assen and had to come back with you know blood in his boots and um uh in tremendous pain desperately trying to ride just to score points because there was still a, a mathematical chance that he could uh, he could hold on to the title. Yeah, and I think uh, Dune's obviously an interesting one because he's just at that crossover point. And, uh, you know, I remember we had to do some of the classic races from back in 92, and you see just how good he was compared to Rainey, Schwantz, whoever you want to look at. And as you said, David, he would have walked away with that championship very easily if it wasn't for the Aston crash. And how differently would you view Dewan's career if he wins the 92 title? He probably wins the 93 title then as well. And then suddenly he goes on his five in a row. So you would view his career very differently. And without that crash, he'd definitely be in most people's top five lists just because he did his winning against the best guys. And then statistically in the Premier class, he's right up there against anyone else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's uh, as you say, like circumstances as well. Um, uh, Casey's, I think Casey Stoner's statistics are negatively coloured because he spent so much time on uh, uh, on the Ducati. Um, you know, he stuck with the Ducati when when the bike. I mean, basically, it was uh, it was a half decent bike in two thousand and seven, and they barely changed it uh, the, through through the four years that he was actually on the bike. Uh, by the time it got to two thousand and ten, it was you know quite clearly inferior. It was a little bit. It was it, it was more powerful. It's a little bit faster, but it, it just wasn't um, uh, anywhere near as competitive as the other um, uh, as the other bikes, as the Yamahas and the Hondas were. And you saw as soon as he jumped uh, jumped sort of onto the Honda, um, just how dominant it was and just, just how good he was once he was on a, on a decent racing motorcycle. Um, uh, so yeah, I think Stoner's, uh, uh, 
stoner statistics are coloured by are distorted really by his disease uh, by the Ducati by sticking with the Ducati uh, as you say Dunes Dunes uh, statistics are distorted by um, the fact that he was injured and we might look at him very very differently indeed if um, uh, if he hadn't had the uh, had the crash but the, the what ifs one of the biggest what ifs for me is Jarno Saarinen who I have a very who I have a, a soft spot for I think he could have been something incredibly special if he hadn't have been killed at Monza um, um, you know, we were, we will never know because he only he only ever had a, a couple of uh, uh, a couple of races in the Premier class. But um, uh, yeah, what might that have been? Right, Dave. I've actually just gotten a text from Neil. Go on. I've got his top five list. So this is the five that he put in for his piece with On Track Off Road, and I'm looking forward to reading why Neil has his list set up the way he does. But Dave, who's who's at his number one? Uh, I well, uh, I wouldn't be so. I wouldn't be surprised if he had Freddie Spencer at number one. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if he had Mark Marquez at number one. Okay, well, he doesn't have Spencer in his list, Ooh. so he's got Marquez at number one, which I think is fair enough for everyone. Uh, so we've got a general consensus, unsurprisingly, that Mark Marquez is the greatest rider of all time. Uh, Neil then has best, Ross. The, the, the best rider. Uh, well, Dave, let's not split hairs about that. We don't have many hairs that we can get rid of. <laughs> um, so he's got Marquez as his number one rider of all time, should we say then, Dave? Yes. And then he's got Rossi at number two, Halewood, Kenny Roberts, and he does have Eddie Lawson inside his top five. <laughs> So basically, he's got sort of your list, but with Lawson instead of Rainey. Yeah, Dave. So he's got Lawson in there instead of Rainey, and uh, then just a little bit of a shake-up in the order compared to one and the other. But uh, yep, myself and Neil both agree on Rossi being the second, uh, the number two rider in our list. And then we've got uh, a little bit of a mix-up there. Neil, for some reason, has uh, Halewood ahead of... uh, Roberts and uh, I don't really understand that at all but uh, I think uh, I think these lists are always interesting Dave just because you're able to you're able to sit down and have a think about what's important to you in terms of what makes a great Grand Prix rider and clearly on your list it comes down to the question of their sheer talent and again that comes back to what we were talking about with Ian One briefly earlier on and when you look at Marquez, when you look at Casey, when you look at their ability to jump on a bike straight away, it wasn't really the same for Rossi. It took Rossi a little bit of time with the 500 and indeed the MotoGP bike, the four-stroke, to really understand how to get the most from that bike. If you think back to when Rossi first rode a four-stroke, he wanted to make it into a two-stroke, which again, David, it's a bit similar to what you were talking to Peter Baum about last week on the show, where when there was the switch to Moto2, riders want what they're used to. And that's probably what's most impressive about Casey or Mark, where they just want what's fastest. They don't really care if it's what they're accustomed to. They just want something that's as quick as possible to give them the best chance of winning as possible. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed Gilles Bigot uh, once who uh, was a uh, working for Honda at the time. Or no, he was working for Yamaha at the uh, at the time of the switch from two strokes to four strokes. Uh, and he was basically saying like all of the riders wanted that. They all wanted the same thing, which was uh, they really wanted, uh, when they jumped on the four stroke, they wanted it to behave like a two stroke. So they were taking out engine braking and uh, 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 and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, 
Rossi was the least of that. Rossi would Rossi was doing it less than some of the other riders, which is what made him um, more competitive than, uh, than than some of the people who'd been in the class for a very very long time and were so j- just so used to two strokes. Uh, Rossi understood that you know it wasn't a two stroke and he had to do something. But you also saw that when Rossi jumped onto the Ducati, he just could not make it work um, because, uh, you know, he couldn't turn the bike on the throttle uh, the way that Stoner had done. Um, uh, and they had to completely reconstruct the, uh, uh re, you know, re- completely strip the bike down, rebuild it, and try and uh, basically throw it, uh, throw it all out and, and start all over again. In some ways, um, uh, I think Valentino Rossi was the best thing that ever happened to uh, Ducati because it made them realise that it really was. Um, uh, it, it really was Stoner who had been doing the winning and not their bike. They, they made them realize that the bike was fundamentally flawed and they needed to uh, to start again. And they, they really did start again, um, uh, you know, getting rid of Filippo Preziosi, the uh, the head of racing, um, and, uh, you know, bringing in Gigi Deligna. And even, even then it took Deligna sort of basically three years to to make a competitive bike. And uh, Dave, just when you when you look at that from that perspective, just when you look at the rest of your list, then obviously Ago and uh, McDoon, they're two riders. Ago had a lot of his success on the MV and then was able to switch onto the Yamaha. So again, that sort of falls into line with what we've heard said about the likes of Rossi or, or Stoner being able to win on different bikes. And then when you look at Doohan and when you look at Marquez who statistically through their career is very similar in the Premier class but they've done all their winning on the Honda and do you think not so much in terms of is it important to win on two bikes but do you think is the resources that are available to different riders is that important in what way you think in terms of these lists I mean uh, in terms of these lists I think it is important in the sense that you have to look at the the, the machines that they were racing um, so if you look at what Ago did um, he definitely had when he was on the MV he absolutely had the best uh, the, the best bike at the time um, when he switched to Yamaha uh, you know it was a it was a two stroke it was new it was uh, something very different it was also a very very different way of racing and he still managed to win um, um, so yeah that's important it, it, if you look at uh, Marquez I mean again as you were saying with Troy Bayliss, what Marquez wants is just, you know, a bike which is faster than everyone else's and he'll fix the rest. Um, he asked at the end of 2018, he asked for more horsepower so that he could be competitive. He could compete against the, uh, uh, the Ducati in the straights. And he told, uh, Takeo Yokoyama, the head of the Brighton GP project, just give me more power so I can, uh, so I can, uh, uh, so I don't lose Dovizioso on the straights and I'll sort out the corners. And that's, you know, basically what he did. The, the Honda, it's not a particularly good bike, um, in part because uh, it's got Mar- Marquez on and Mar- Marquez is doing all the winning. Um, uh, perhaps that's also a mark of exceptional talent where uh, the bike actually gets worse. The bike gets worse with the rider on it 
despite them still winning on it because it, you know it, it was the same it was the same with Stoner the bike got worse over the years but he still managed to keep winning races um he just had to get you know dig more and more deeply into himself to to uh, to find the wins um doing i think it's a little bit different doing um the level of competition i mean the the Yamaha was a a great bike but still um you know, Honda's always went for horsepower. Yamaha's always went for uh, for handling, and uh, Doohan was always chasing. He was also always made trying to make the bike more difficult to ride to give himself a, an advantage over everyone else. You know, he switched between the Screamer and the Big Bang engines. Um, uh, basically, whenever um, as soon as someone caught up to him, then he changed the bike again to make it more difficult to ride. He didn't want the bike easier to ride because that would um, uh, that would help his rivals. And he knew that he could, with his talent, he could outride everyone else. Yeah, and of course, for doing. And I was just about to mention that, Dave, that, uh, you know, he did try and use that to his advantage against the likes of Crivier in particular. And Doom was remarkably impressive mentally. Like, you only have to look at how he came back from all of his injuries, but just how strong he was at just the sheer mental warfare of racing. And uh, that was something that I think he was better at than pretty much any other rider I can think of, you know, when you look at uh, Rossi, obviously there was times during his career where he was incredibly strong at playing mental games, but doing just could destroy people with a look. And, uh, you know, when you look at his sustained success and the ability to keep motivated when, you know, the competition wasn't as high, you know, and he'd do it just by finding different, different ways to do that. It could be where, you know, his bonuses were based on winning races, not finishing on a podium. So he just wanted to go out and win every race. And, uh, you know, Doohan could cut through people with a look or a quick comment. And, you know, he's mellowed a bit over the years, but he's not one of those riders that once they retired, suddenly became incredibly easygoing. <laughs> and it's it's interesting to see what he's like with his son racing there, because obviously Jack is, you know, a, a good carter and a good car racer now and it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with his career over time just to see how many of the lessons that Doohan learned from his racing career have been passed on as well yeah absolutely i mean um as you say like the the, the mental side of racing is really important as well and you see that um uh, above the top again i i think this speaks for um uh, this speaks for Giacomo agostini as well agostini um, would lap people. He could have won, you know, comfortably, safely by sort of, you know, two, three seconds uh, every race. But he didn't. He wanted to go out and, and actually lap people. He wanted to go around as fast as possible uh, and win. And his winning margins were usually in the minutes rather than the seconds. Uh, uh, that, I think, is what makes it, um, uh, is what makes it, you know, truly remarkable um mark marcus again i mean as you said valentino rossi is known for his mental strength and his ability to to, to get into people's heads um but mark marcus was completely unfazed by all of this even in 2015 in sepang when valentino rossi um pulled that well uh, uh, put on a show in the sepang pre-event press conference accusing him of cheating uh, you know that was that was he took it in his stride. Uh, you know, Marquez took it in his stride and uh, and, and basically, you know, took the war to uh, 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 to Rossi 
out on track. Um, I think also with all of these great riders, what you see is that um, they come to dominate the class and then a new young rider comes into the class and uh, is no longer afraid of them. Um, the other riders which have, which the, the the champion at the time has been racing against for a long time feel uh, they fear the champion because the champion has managed to dominate it for a long time but then someone someone new will come into the class and not be afraid and i think we're seeing this with fabio quartararo now because fabio quartararo is absolutely not afraid of mark marquez and he's taking the fight to him and it's going to be interesting to see if the yamaha is a little bit better what happens in 2020 and especially in 2021 yeah and i think for me david and we'll finish up on this note as well because obviously this is just a show just going through our top five lists but uh I think for me, one of the interesting things about Marquez was that if you remember back to Valencia in 2012, remember he had that race where he comes through the pack and uh, he finishes off his Moto 2 career in style. And I remember we were sitting in the Tectua hospitality after the Moto GP race. We were debriefing with Cal Crutchlow and uh, we were all just sitting around talking about what we had seen in the Moto 2 race. And Cal stopped everyone and said, listen, guys, you have no idea how good Marquez is. He's already the best rider in the world, and he's going to prove it on his first test. And he was dead right. Immediately, Mark was riding in a in a way that was totally different to anything that we'd seen. And that was when he had jumped, just jumped onto Casey's bike, and he was immediately that good. And that's the thing about all five riders on my list, the five riders on your list, the five riders on Neil's list. And let's be honest, if you were to make this into your top 10, 15 list, all of those riders could jump onto a bike and naturally find how it needed to be ridden. They were all fast on pretty much anything. They were all going to be incredibly successful. But the reason that Mark elevated himself to be unanimous number one in all of our lists was that he did it immediately from his very first time on the bike and i don't think any of the other guys maybe with the exception of someone like uh, kenny roberts did that as well yeah absolutely i mean you again it's a measure of how good someone is is how quickly they adapt to the new class um uh, you can see it time and again someone will change classes and they move they move up and they really need to be sort of on the podium uh, in the first half of the season uh, in the new class and then you know you've got something special uh, for me the one thing about marquez uh, the, 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 when i knew he was special was esteril i think in 2010 when he crashed on um, uh, i think he crashed on the sighting lap and then had to come in and he just sat there quietly on his bike while his team were manically stripping the um uh, uh, uh stripping the fairing off the, the the broken fairing checking his foot pegs and all the rest of it um got back on the bike went out um and uh, came through the field to i don't think i can't remember if he won or came uh, but finished second but he, that was that was the race where he really clinched that championship um so yeah that sort of calmness and at the time he was what six seventeen eighteen uh truly remarkable to have that presence of mind and that uh, and that calmness at, at that age yeah i think even more impressively that day was that was the race had been red flagged and then he crashed on the way to the grid on the siding lap 
and then they got the repairs done and he went out and won the race and yeah. you know nothing was going to stop him and he's done that a few times there was even a video on MotoGP's Instagram and Twitter accounts this week of him coming through at Motegi he stalled on the grid on the Moto2 yeah. bike and you know it's as if nothing's happened half a lap later he's just just barging through on people now it also showed how little respect Mark has <laughs> for his rivals at times and uh, you know that's that's something that I don't know if he's gotten better at it over the years, but he's just out in front now, so it doesn't really matter. But, uh, you know, there's a few times whenever you see with riders like Mark that just have that ability where, you know, they almost just disregard the riders around them. We saw it with Johnny Ray, actually, in Phillip Island this year, where, you know, he has that clash with Caracasulo a couple of times and then crashes out of the race. And it, it, it all came down to not so much a lack of respect, but I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be in this position. So just get out of my way. And you're coming through no matter what. And and I think that's something that all these riders share as well. That just that belief that they shouldn't be in the middle of the pack. They should be out in front. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the one thing that wish they all share is an uh, uh, almost astonishment uh, that they're almost affronted that, and insulted that other people dare to uh, uh, to to be uh, you know in their way to be sort of on the same track as them because they are clearly the best in the world. That self confidence, that self belief, that's the mark of a champion. I think. Okay. Well. Thanks again for joining us, Dave. And uh, it'll be interesting to read Neil's reasoning behind his top five list, but always interesting to hear what you have to say. And uh, what's the plans between now and next week's show, Dave? Obviously, we're getting closer and closer to the start of the Grand Prix season, so you've uh, got to get yourself uh, fully fit now. You're out cycling all the time? Oh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, uh, I am spending a lot of my time cycling, trying to make it to, uh, basically trying to cycle off, uh, sort of 10 years of hospitality food. Um, I think I'm, uh, uh, so far I'm up to about 2015 and I've got another five years worth of, uh, of uh, hospitality food to, uh, to cycle off before we go. So, um, uh, it, you know, trying to make the best, uh, the, the best use of the, uh, um, of the lockdown possible. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I think that's the same for a lot of people. I know right now, Neil's getting ready to head out. Obviously, Barcelona's out of lockdown. He's only got a couple of weeks until he's able to get back to work as well. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be fun once we are back racing, Dave. Obviously, some little tidbits of news coming through over the course of the last couple of days. Bradley Smith confirmed as uh, Ian One's replacement at Aprilia. And uh, then obviously just the rumor mill spinning about uh, who goes where for next year. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a few things. Obviously, we have the problem with um, uh, KTM. The KTM riders are all um, uh, prevented from s- talking about their future in uh, uh, until September the 15th. Uh, but it's quite clear that Paulus Bargaro is off to Repsol Honda. It's quite clear that Danilo Petrucci is going to take the second KTM or the, you know, the, the, the factory KTM seat. Um, it looks like Jorge Martin is going to be at uh, Pramac Ducati. Uh, there should be an announcement soon on um, uh, Valentino Rossi's future. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we are getting close to some decisions being made, I think. Okay, thanks very much, David. And a lot of fun to listen to what you have to say about your top five list and the latest news in the MotoGP paddock. Obviously, until the next time on the Paddock Pass podcast, we want to say a big thank you to everyone for listening to the show and supporting us with our Patreon page. If you want to 
support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash podcast, and we'll have an exclusive question and answer coming up on the Patreon page just for all of our supporters in the, the run-up to the opening races of the MotoGP season in Hereth, obviously the second round of the MotoGP Championship after what we had in Qatar. And uh, we'll make that open and available to all of our Patreon supporters. So a big thank you to everyone for listening to the show and be sure to follow us at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. Uh, there's a lot of silence here, Brian, because uh, I have lost contact with Mr. English. I'm sure you'll be able to slice something together in that, Brian, <laughs> getting late here. Anyway, thanks very much.